very interesting topic, but I think you're going to be surprised to find out just how very significant this is. This isn't just some story that's tucked away in the Old Testament that really has no relevance to your life today. This is really foundational to most of what we believe today as Christians and the the subtitle, This Changes Everything. It sounds maybe kind of dramatic, but it's fairly true. If the flood, as described in the Bible, actually happened, and, and that's how the Bible describes it, that this actually happened, if it really did happen, it, it will challenge just about everything you've been taught about the history of the world that we're living in today. It's, it's very different from the story that we grow up with. If you went to public schools, I went to public schools through grade school, junior high, and high school, went to a Christian college and then the state university, but you know, I learned all the stories that you probably learned too about the Big Bang and the earth cooling over millions and millions and millions of years and all that, and they laugh about the flood story. Well, you're going to see today the flood story is not this laughable, cute story from the Old Testament. This is actual history. It actually happened, and it really matters whether or not it happened. So that's where we're headed. For those of you who don't know me, I'll just go over some of my background very, very quickly. Um, As Travis mentioned, after I graduated from high school, I went to a Christian college, John Brown University in Arkansas, to study mechanical engineering. (laughs) And uh, got a degree there, but became more interested in physics. They didn't have a physics major, so then I transferred to UW-Whitewater to get a degree in physics, and that's when everything changed for me because my professors at Whitewater were telling me I was wrong about all my beliefs. (laughs) And I realized I I know what I believe, but I don't know why. I, I cannot defend my Christian worldview. I didn't doubt it. I just couldn't defend it to all my physics professors and other professors. So... God put it on my heart at that point in my life to really start digging into all these things. So I've spent the past 34 years uh, researching all this and speaking it, and then uh, speaking on it and then going into full-time ministry about 13 and a half, almost 14 years ago. But the Starting Point Project, which is, uh, I won't go into that whole talk, but everyone starts somewhere with their belief system. You've you got to start somewhere. And Christians start with the belief that God exists and the Bible is his word, and then we use that starting point to define everything else around us. Whereas a skeptic and atheist, they would have a different starting point, and they would use that to define the world around them. And Christian worldview is really the only one that works to consistently, accurately make sense of the world that we're living in today. And then also was invited to be on the board of directors of Logos Research Associates. I added this one in here because it ties into the talk today. This is the world's largest consortium of scientists who are Christians. Um, There are four board members. Uh, I've been on the board for me about seven years now. The founding member, Dr. John Sanford from Cornell University, he invented something called the gene gun, inserts genes into the DNA. He's worldwide famous for that. Brilliant scientist, very godly man, very humble man, great guy. Then the one who ties in more today, Dr. John Baumgartner, he's a PhD geophysicist, He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics. (laughs) Just off the charts, you know, brilliant, and even secular scientists use that model uh, today. And what I usually share, and then I think there's one other board member and myself, as smart as these guys are, if they were here this morning, they would be the first to admit, out of all four board members, I am the tallest. They, they cannot argue with that. It's just it's a fact. <laughs> but that's about all I can say. So I'm just honored to be on the board, but I learn a lot of things from them, and then I can put it into English, you know, a language that the rest of us can understand, because some of these guys <laughs> aren't the best lecturers, but, man, they're, they're pretty smart. Uh, here's my family. 
Uh, Amy and I have been married 27 years in a row, which is good. <laughs> and, uh, and our son Taylor just got married last year. His wife Kayla and our daughter Tori got married to Matt last year. They both got, so we kind of cranked it all out and got over with. <laughs> um, but we love, they're close by. We love having them around. And then I had to throw this in too. We also have the two dogs, which are our daughter's dogs. So we, we went from two cats, two dogs, and two kids, to no cats, no dogs, and no kids. And so it's very quiet around the house. Very clean, too. <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> uh, but back to the talk here. This is, again, really, really interesting. We're going to go right back to the beginning. The Garden of Eden. Everyone's familiar with you know, the creation account and the Garden of Eden. What's one of the first things that happens here? Well, Satan gets in there and says to Eve, hath God said. He said to Eve, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in that garden? Well, you know what? God didn't say that. He said you can eat of any tree in that garden except for one. So Satan twisted God's word and took it out of context and he got Eve to doubt the word of God. His plan has not changed at all today. He's doing the same thing. Certainly skeptics don't think that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But even many Christians don't really see this truly as being the inspired word of God from cover to cover. Oh yeah, great stuff in here, important stuff, the Jesus stuff, yeah, we're fine with that. But other stuff like, well, it says this, but we know better now, and I don't really believe that, and I don't like this. So we kind of pick and choose. We use a different source of authority to then use that and overlay that on the Bible to decide what we're going to believe, what makes sense, and what doesn't. So the plan has not changed and today we pretty much lost our moral compass. Things have always been getting a little worse. I think the wheels are falling off. I mean, it's just so obvious. Last I checked, Facebook recognizes 72 different options for gender. If you paid me a million dollars, I couldn't think of 12. I mean, but they have 72. And then I ask, what's wrong with that? And my answer is nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, unless there is a singular source against which everything is measured, then I could say, you know, you know what? I, I actually do have a reason why I think that's not going to work. And then I could point them to what God's word says. It's not my philosophy versus theirs. I'm just helping them understand what God has said about his world. He created it and he decided it's going to be one man and one woman. If you wanted 72, he could have done that. He could have explained that. But he said, no, it's, it's going to be one and two. That's, why, that's the only reason why I think there's an issue with that. And the reason it's causing all these other problems is because it's violating God's standard. It's not wrong because there are problems. It's wrong because God says it's a problem that's wrong. And it's causing problems because it's violating his standards. So... And things are just getting crazier and crazier. And the Bible says that that's kind of what's going to be happening in the end anyway. And Jesus said this in Matthew, for as the days of Noah were, so will it be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said, you remember what it was like in Noah's time? Things were getting really bad. I mean, so bad that the thoughts of every man was only evil continually. So God says, that's it. I'm, I'm going to destroy this world. Jesus said that that's kind of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. And I think we are getting to that point where it's just getting crazy. And I don't see it getting better. And now we're back and we're a nation for Christ again. And all this is like, mm. I think the Bible paints a little different picture. And this is what I was talking about in Noah's day. So the law, Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
So it was just that bad that God says, that's it, time's up, I'm going to wipe them all out, but he spared Noah and his family. Second Peter, now we're in the New Testament, because that's all that Old Testament stuff, and no one really reads that unless you, you have to teach children. Then you kind of pull out one of the Old Testament stories because they're kind of fun, but other than that, you just hang out in the New Testament, right? That's what a lot, of, a lot of Christians do. We don't take the Old Testament maybe as seriously, and it seems disconnected. I, I talked to one pastor about the importance of Genesis, how foundational it is. He goes, oh, wait a minute, you've got to be careful trying to tie the New Testament into the Old Testament. And this was not some left-wing liberal church. This was a pretty evangelical fundamental church. I'm thinking, oh, my word, how can you not? I mean, almost nothing in the New Testament makes any sense without the Old Testament. But now we're in the New Testament in 2 Peter. So this is almost 2,000 years ago. Peter is talking about our days, the last days. And most of us think that, yeah, we're probably in the end times. Um, and Peter is talking about this 2,000 years ago. He's kind of giving a prophecy of what it's going to be like. And this is what he said. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back and analyze portions. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, meaning you guys have heard this before. I'm just drawing your attention to it again. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord, the Savior, through your, holy, or through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming, meaning the return of Christ? For ever since the fathers fell asleep or died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they, willing, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, there's a lot there. We're going to go back and just pick a few portions and talk about them. Here's the analysis. It says, knowing this, first of all, it's scoffers. The doubters will come in the last days, and they're going to be following their own sinful desires. So what's causing them to go this way? It's their own unrighteousness, their own sinful desires. And they'll say, where is the coming of, you know, the return of Christ? He's, he's not here now. He hasn't come back yet. In fact, he's never coming back. And they say, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they're basically saying that Christ hasn't come back yet. He's not here now. In fact, he's never coming back. Every, then they go on to say, everything continues on from the beginning of the universe until now, just kind of going along, no major bumps in the road. That's what their belief is. So Peter is saying the skeptics of our day are going to say the universe came into existence and it just has kind of gone on the whole time, you know, no major events along the way. That's what he's predicting. It's really interesting. Here's a lesson from history. This is very, very important. Um, we talk about Darwin quite a bit and people come down on him. Oh, you know, he invented this idea of evolution. No, he didn't invent it. He just popularized it. But he did not wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'm going to play tennis today. No, no, I think I'm going to write The Origin of Species. And then he writes the book. That's not what happened. It didn't happen in a vacuum. There were a lot of things going on prior to that decision that led him to do that. And these are two significant things. James Hutton and Charles Lyell lived uh, Hutton prior to Darwin. James Hutton is the father of modern geology, and this is what he said. The past history of our globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. No powers are to be employed that are not natural to the globe, no action to be admitted except those of which we know the principle. 
So prior to this, people thought that, you know, okay, God had created everything. It seemed pretty obvious. That's what the Bible said too. And then there was a worldwide flood and all that. James Hutton came along and said, nope, we can only explain current features, Mount Everest, Grand Canyon, and all that, by just principles and things we observe today. Well, what do we see today? We see wind and rain and just slight erosion here and sand blowing across, just those slow, gradual processes. We can only refer to those things to then explain why is Mount Everest there? Why is Grand Canyon there? Well, if that's what you're going to do, it would certainly take a long time to carve out the Grand Canyon. If you just have some wind blowing, some rivers flowing, it would take millions and millions of years. So all of a sudden, he decided, no, God didn't create everything in six days. The earth must be very, very, very old. This was not a scientific decision. This was a philosophical decision to decide we're going to rule out anything supernatural. That's what he said. And then uh, that has to do with something called uniformitarianism. Uniform processes just going on throughout eons of time to explain everything apart from what Scripture says. Charles Lyell was born in the year that Hutton died, and he piggybacked on what Hutton had to say, and he wrote a three-volume series called Principles of Geology, and his goal in writing this was to do this, to free the science from Moses. What does that mean? That means get away from that Bible stuff, that whole creation account, and then this flood. No, no, we, we need to get away from that. Science needs to move us away from the authority of Scripture and explain everything naturally. So... He wrote uh, those three volumes, which is interesting because, again, Jesus speaking in John chapter 5, he said, For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how will you, you believe my words? So Jesus is saying, you, you guys are doubting Moses, but Moses wrote of me. So why would you believe in me when you're doubting Moses who wrote about me? So Jesus is tying in the importance of the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, including the book of Genesis. So he writes these three volumes of Principles of Geology. Darwin took the first volume with him on the Beagle. And Darwin connected the dots. And he said, if these guys prior to me could figure out how to explain the natural features of the earth through these newly found millions and millions of years and just slow natural processes, maybe he, Darwin, could explain the variety of life on this planet through the millions and millions and millions of newly discovered years by natural processes apart from the supernatural. And so he writes The Origin of Species, trying to explain all that apart from God. There's a lot going on there behind the scenes as well, but that's kind of where our history took a big turn from relying on scripture and trusting it to saying, no, we have better ideas. And now all of you know, secular education is based on these uniformitarianism principles. Back to Second Peter. Peter's talking about the skeptics, the skeptics who are doubting the, re the return of Christ. Peter says there are two main reasons why they are doubting the return of Christ. Now, it's not these two things. <laughs> it's two other things. Now, the return of Christ, that's certainly a spiritual thing. Um, so the two things that are causing skeptics to doubt that, those would probably be spiritual too, right? That's not what Peter says. And this is just still blows me away. This is fascinating. This is what Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said. Those two things are. He said, number one, they deliberately overlooked that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. This is a reference to the original creation account that God created the earth covered with water on day one. He created it out of water, by water. It was covered with water on day one. 
So Peter is saying this is the first thing that are causing skeptics to doubt the return of Christ. They're rejecting the creation account. Number two, he says that by means of these, meaning that those waters, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That's the flood. Peter says the reason the skeptics are doubting the return of Christ is because they're rejecting the creation account and they're rejecting the Genesis flood. Today, every single secular scientist rejects the Genesis creation account and they reject the Genesis flood. Sadly, many Christians reject the Genesis creation account and the Genesis flood. Oh, they believe God's the creator. Oh, yeah, God created everything, but not in the six-day thing. Like, we know better because we know about the Big Bang. We got radiometric dating and all these things. So that's been proven, so you can't take Genesis seriously. And the flood, no real scientist believes there was a worldwide flood. I mean, where did all that water come from? Where did all that water go? And on and on and on. So that can't be serious either. So when you're reading through it, nah, it it's just a story. That's what they say. Many Christians, certainly a lot of religious people, but even very serious Christians, will look at the Word of God differently because of what they're being told by secular scientists. And Peter predicted that 2,000 years ago. So let's quickly look at how the Bible describes this event. Starting out in Genesis 6:17, To save some time, I think I'm just going to highlight on the, the, the green words there. It said that this flood would destroy all flesh. Everything that is on earth shall die. Chapter 7 says all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Further in chapter 7, it says the, earth, the, the waters were high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The waters prevailed that all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. It's about 22 and a half feet. All flesh died, all swarming things, all mankind, everything. Every living thing. Only Noah was saved and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Does that sound like, yeah, it's just local flood? Not at all. So why would I even say that? Because many religious people and many Christians come to that conclusion. Not from the text, but because they are told the Big Bang is a fact. There was never a worldwide flood. There's no evidence. It's impossible. It could not have happened. So then when they're reading the Bible, they're like, okay, well, I know it didn't happen. So, oh, this is just a story that Moses told to teach us about I don't know, animals, water, ark. It's, it's a cool story. You've got to love the story. It's fun, even if it didn't happen. So they say it was just, it's just a local flood in that area, not a global flood. Okay, well, let's take a look at that. Here are seven problems. There are others. Here are just seven problems with the idea of a local flood. We'll start out number one. If it was just a local flood, why would Noah spend so much time building an ark? When you study it, it's not 120 years. It's anywhere from 50 to 75 years would be the time he was actually building that ark. That's a long time. Why would God have Noah spend so much time building a local ark if it was just a local flood? God could have said, hey, Noah, here's a number of a good realtor. Move, I'm going to flood this area. And he would have had all that time, all those years, to just move somewhere else. But if it was a global flood, he'd have to have something like an ark. Why build such a massive ark? A local flood, you could have just put local animals on it. You'd be fine. But this is over 2 million cubic feet of storage space. It was massive. There's lots of details we don't have time for this morning. But if it was a local flood, you could have just had a small ark to put some of the local animals on it. Number three, why put birds on the ark? Local flood, the birds could have just flown away. But if it was a global flood for a year, yeah, you would need to have the birds on the ark as well. Number four, the Bible says all the high hills under all the heaven 
were covered. Quick side note, I usually don't share, but I'll say it fast. There's, and I won't even mention his name, there's a very popular Christian speaker who is a creationist, and I don't doubt his Christianity, but he buys into the Big Bang and billions of years for the age of the earth and all that, and, and ape-like, human-like creatures living before Adam and Eve and just some really strange things. But he doesn't believe in a global flood either because he's bought into at least other secular ideas which aren't well scientifically supported anyway. But when he comes to the flood, he was actually speaking, he gave a lecture, and he said, open up your Bibles, look at this passage, see where it says all the high hills under all the heavens were covered? Just take your pens, right now you can do this, and cross out the word, word all. It's in your English Bible, but it's not in the Hebrew. He goes, that happens sometimes, they put extra words in there to make it flow, whatever, it's not in the Hebrew. It's not all the high hills under all the heavens. Guess what? It's in there. <laughs> he had to pull that lecture off of the shelf because it was wrong. He doesn't know Greek and Hebrew. He's not an expert, but he's saying things to support his idea that aren't supported by scripture. You cannot cover all the high hills under all the heavens in a local area. Water seeks its own level. It's going to spread out. You can't do this in a local area. It was a global flood. Also, did God break his promise? We have the rainbow. What does a rainbow represent? Well, it's God's covenant with us he said he's not going to send a flood again. If it was just a local flood back then, then God lied. Because we've had thousands of floods since then where hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. So did God lie or was it actually a global flood? We've, again, lots of these floods. Also, local floods don't take 370 days. They don't last that long. <laughs> Nowhere near that long. But the biblical flood was about 370 days long. And then lastly... The Bible says the waters receded for 73 days. It doesn't take 73 days for waters to recede from a local flood. The text in Hebrew is written as actual historical narrative, and it screams this is a global event. And that's, we always believe that until the secular scientists came along and said, nope, that's not plausible anymore. You have to change your view of the Bible. And many Christians say, okay, well, then why don't we get rid of the Jesus thing? It's not plausible that someone comes back to life after three days. Maybe after 30 seconds or three minutes, but not three days. So throw that out too, because science has proven people don't come back from the dead. Well, yeah, but Jesus was God, and he, it was a miracle, yeah. And just like he could rise again after three days, he could create everything in six days, just like he told us. And there could be a global flood, just like he told us. And there's so much evidence for it as well. So this was a global flood, not a local flood. Is there any evidence? Because that's what everyone wants to hear. There's tons. In fact, I just did a four-session series on this topic. You're getting the condensed version. I'm not even sure what, I'm, what I've left in here or what I haven't, so this is new to me. keeps me awake and on my toes. But we'll take a look at a bunch of lines of scientific evidence that there was a global flood. Number one, we have marine fossils on top of mountains. Marine, ocean creatures fossilized on top of mountains, including Mount Everest, 29,000 feet. That's five and a half miles high. How do we get... Sea creatures fossilized, like crinoids and ammonites, fossilized on top of mountains. Unless the mountains were lower in the past and the sediments were being deposited and then they were pushed up higher. Number two, we have rapid burial of plants and animals. The only way you get a fossil is to bury something rapidly. What do we hear in school? Like, well, the you know, animal dies and it lays there and then over time the winds come and sands kind of start to bury it and then it turns into a fossil. That is a silly story. It's impossible. 
the animal we know would rot away. Other animals would eat the meat and then the bones would sit there for a while. Even the bones would disintegrate and just gone. But if it got buried under a local landslide, the meat will decay away, but the bones can, can fossilize. But they have to be buried rapidly. And the fact that we have these layers all over the planet, literally filled with billions and billions of fossils, tells us that those layers must have been laid down catastrophically. So here's that standard story, talking about dinosaurs. We'll say the dinosaur died, maybe some riverbed, and then the sediments come along and start to bury it over time, and you get another layer, and then you get more layers, and then eventually sometimes the ground will even tilt up a little bit, and then you get some erosion going on and exposing the bones, and we see them, and then we dig them up, like, oh, a fossil of a dinosaur, really cool. Again, those bones would have rotted away long ago if they were being buried slowly over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Had to be buried rapidly. Here's a fossil of a fish inside of another fish. This fish had just started, you know, had just swallowed it, was going to digest it, but it didn't have time to digest it. It was buried that rapidly. Here's another one that's in the process of eating, swallowing the fish. He didn't start eating that and then get sick and lay there for millions of years until he got buried and fossilized. <laughs> he got buried really quick. And there are many, many other examples along the same line. Then we have rapid or no, you know, very little erosion in between the layers. So it seems like the layers must have been laid down catastrophically and rapidly to get the fossils, but then it seems like in between, nothing was really going on in between time from one layer to the next, and you'll see the visuals on this. As my son and I, last year, I, I give uh, tours of the Grand Canyon, but we just walk along the rim, and then we take a bus down to the river, and then we float on the river really easy. Another group asked if I would actually hike all the way down, one mile all the way down to the Colorado River, six-hour hike all one mile down, and then the next day a steeper path on the way up. It takes more energy to go up. <laughs> I know that for sure now. <laughs> I knew the physics before, but now I know a real-life experience. So, But my son went with me. It was in February, so there was snow and ice at the top of the trail, but we were going to go down, and you'll be able to see the path that we were, kind of just zigzags around and then it goes off in the distance and kind of lose track of it. But then you see the people obviously on the, there for scale. We were headed towards the bottom of the gorge where the Colorado River is to Phantom Ranch. Um, it was a fascinating trip. I'll skip some of those details. But here's a cutout of the, of the Grand Canyon. And you've all seen pictures like this before with all the layers there. I'm going to focus in on two layers here. The Coconino Sandstone, which they call the bathtub rim of the Grand Canyon. You can see a white layer all around the, the canyon. And then right below it is the Hermit Shale. So now here's me on the path at that connection, the Coconino Sandstone and the Hermit Shale. And take a look at the contact point between these two layers. It's like a razor edge, knife edge. They tell us that there were 10 million years of Earth history that went on in between those layers. So the Hermit Shale was laid down, they say, yeah, catastrophically, because they're fossils. But then that layer sat there for 10 million years of Earth history, and then the Coconino Sandstone was laid down rapidly. 10 years of history? <laughs> Is this flat? There's a problem with that, and we'll see why here in a second, but there's some other layers really quick. A little bit further down, we have the Redwall Limestone and the Muav Limestone. There's supposedly 160 million years of missing Earth history. And then lastly, at the bottom, the Tapit Sandstone is the first layer of sedimentary rocks that were laid down on top of the creation rocks, the Vishnu Schist. They say there's up to a 
billion years of Earth history just missing. There's just nothing. They don't know what was going on there, but that represents a billion years of Earth history. So you can go to the canyon and look at nothing and say, wow, that's, ten, that's you know, a billion years of Earth history. When I see nothing, yeah, see the nothing there? That's 10 billion years of evidence. Like, so nothing is a proof that there was 10 billion years. It doesn't make any sense at all. So here's the Grand Canyon. That's the Tapete Sandstone. That's the first layer of sediments that were laid down during the flood, churned up the uh, Vishnu Schist that was below it. There's the Vishnu Schist layer. What's interesting, again, this is the Grand Canyon. When you're on the rim, south rim, you're looking about a mile down to, to see that. But you don't have to go to the Grand Canyon to see it. You can go to Devil's Lake. How many of you have been to Devil's Lake? Probably most of you. Um, you can see that, that line there. It's called the Great Unconformity. So here's Devil's Lake. Here's another shop, Devil's Doorway there. Here's me. And now we'll go back to the Grand Canyon here. That's the Tapit Sandstone, on, and that's the, the delineation between the original creation rocks and the first flood layer there. You can see that right here. You walk right up to it. So the rocks below, they call it the Baraboo Quartzite. It's really the same layer that you see in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, but when they're in different areas of the United States, they, they give it different names, but it's the same thing. So we got the Baraboo Quartzite there, and then above it, we have some of the quartzite boulders of that rock was just churned up, so you got big chunks of it, and then you have something they call Jordan Sandstone that's cementing it, it's called a conglomerate. But that's where the flood came through and just ripped up solid rock like that and then redeposited the sedimentary layers on top of it. And again, it's if you go up the East Bluff, Shortly as you get under the woods, this is one of the first things you come upon. You wouldn't think anything of it. You see it and you keep walking, but now you'll know if you recognize, if you see this later, there's a little tiny cave there. It doesn't go very far, but if you see some rocks with a little cave in it, that's right where this is. If you want more specifics, contact me afterwards and I can give you a little map of how to get there. But here's a problem with their story. They used to tell us that these layers in the earth were laid down slowly over millions of years by these natural processes. Here's visually why that can't possibly be true. They were discovering the fossils in them, so that's when they realized, okay, the layers must have been laid down rapidly. Well, if the layers were all laid down rapidly, the time is gone. You've just lost your hundreds of millions of years. If you lose your hundreds of millions of years, evolution's impossible. Evolution's actually impossible for genetic reasons too, which I don't have time to go and do. But if you don't have hundreds of millions of years to impress people with saying, yeah, this sounds impossible, but if you have enough time, anything is possible. And people are like, well, I suppose it's true. You know, wait long enough. It's not true. But if they lose their time, they're just done. And they, they couldn't even argue. So you can't lose the time. But they're admitting they've lost the time in the layers. So they got creative. And they say all the time occurred in between the layers. Like I pointed out a few of those examples. Well, here's why there's a problem with the time in between the layers. Let's say that this layer here in the bottom was laid down catastrophically, rapidly, and, and made some fossils. And then it sat there for millions of years of Earth history. What would you see on the top of this layer? Well, you would see erosion, right? Millions of years, you'd see a lot of erosion. You'd see soil developing, plants growing, forests growing, something called bioturbation, animals burrowing up and down. And then the next layer, they say, came along you know, and, and, and was deposited rapidly. And then that sat there for millions and millions of years. Well, you'd see more erosion, sometimes very significant erosion we should see. And then the next layer came along very rapidly and filled it in, fossilized things. And then that layer sat there for millions of years. You'd see more erosion. So take a look again at the contact layers here. They're just kind of all over. That's what we should see if the millions of years existed in between these layers. Well, what do we actually see? It's like pancakes. 
I mean, when you look at the sedimentary layers in the earth, it's like pancakes. Here's painted desert in Arizona. The layers just going straight across like pancakes. Here's more sedimentary layers just going straight across. Here's the Grand Canyon. Um, that's the Coconino Sandstone, the bathtub rim of the Grand Canyon. Again, just layers straight across like pancakes. We got, okay, this one doesn't count. <clears throat> and you know why? Because <laughs> there's no chocolate in it. <laughs> this is a complete waste of calories. So that's my opinion, but those layers don't count. Here's another reason why those layers must have been laid down rapidly one after another. We have something called polystrate fossils. These are fossils that go up through multiple layers. In this example, it's trees. So here's their story. Let's say that this layer was laid down 200 million years ago, and then this tree started growing in that layer. And it stood there for millions of years as it's waiting for the other layers to eventually bury it. It's physically impossible. The tree would have rotted away long before those other layers got there. And take a look at the bottoms of these trees. They're missing something. We like to call them root systems. <laughs> These trees were not growing here. They were growing somewhere else, catastrophically uprooted, torn away from their root systems, and rapidly redeposited here in a single event like the global flood. Sometimes we find these trees laying sideways, even upside down. Here's an actual photograph of a polystrate fossil tree going up through multiple layers. And we find these all over the planet because there was a global flood. Fourth line of evidence, we have greatly folded Rock layers, I don't know if you've ever tried to fold a rock before. Don't waste your time. <laughs> Even if you were strong enough, though, trying to fold that rock, the layers would shatter. We see most instances of there's no shattering in these rock layers, meaning they must have been laid down catastrophically, and as they were still wet and soft, the earth is moving, plate tectonics and all that, scrunching them up, and then they harden afterwards. And there's a lot of examples. Here's one, uh, Amy and I, right here. <laughs> We're over in England, and we got to see this formation. This up here are some people, just that gives you a scale. This is pretty big, so you zoom in, and you see these greatly folded rock layers. And again, you can't fold solid rock. They must have been laid down rapidly, folded while they were soft. This is some Alps that are over in Germany. These things are greatly contorted as you look. They're just kind of folded all over the place. That doesn't happen slowly over millions of years. Then we have in Cornwall, England, again, great folds in here, very, very sharp. That's not going to happen slowly over a million years without shattering the solid rock. And then I think this is my last line of evidence, the number of canyons around the world. This is really interesting. Bill Nye, the science guy. Well, I, I think he's actually a pretty gifted speaker. I think he does a pretty good job when he's telling the youth about electricity and magnetism and stuff like that. He does a pretty good job. But when he's talking about origins, things that happened when we weren't around to see it, origin of the universe, origin of life, he's just way off. He's no friend of creationists and all, but this is what he said. If this great flood drained through the Grand Canyon, wouldn't there have been a Grand Canyon on every continent? How could we not have Grand Canyons everywhere if this water drained away in this extraordinarily short amount of time? That's actually a good question. If there was really a worldwide flood, how could we just have the Grand Canyon here in the United States for us to enjoy? And no one else has them. Guess what? Everyone else has them too. There are canyons all over the planet. Here's one example in Nepal and the Himalayas where Mount Everest is. This is what the canyon looks like. Here are the dimensions. Three and a half miles deep. That's three times, more than three times deeper than the Grand Canyon. And about the same length, the Grand Canyon is 277 miles. This is 308 miles deep. It's massive. So here's the United States. The basin area that this other canyon takes up is equivalent to Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. For scale, 
Here's a map of the Grand Canyon. Let's put that in the United States. That's Grand Canyon <laughs> compared to the basin of this other canyon. The other one's much bigger, and that's just one canyon. Then we have one in Nambia, Africa, in South Africa, in Tibet, China, in New South Wales, Australia. There's a beautiful one in Taiwan, one in Peru, in Romania. There's a real big one in Mexico. And then there's a few others. <laughs> And then there's a few others. <laughs> there's at least 300 canyons all over the planet. And if that wasn't enough already, don't you think it should be? If you act now, we will throw in this free one that was discovered just in 2013. A massive canyon that we didn't even see before until 2013 because it was under the ice in Greenland. When you do ground-penetrating radar, this is what showed up. Massive canyon, much longer than the Grand Canyon, not quite as deep, but 2,600 feet deep. It is a massive canyon we didn't even know was there. I haven't had a chance to update this, but at the end of 2019, in December, they discovered another one that's massive, I think in Antarctica, under the ice. There are massive canyons all over the planet because there was a worldwide flood. So I mentioned that I do tours. I've mentioned them before and of here. If anyone's ever interested, we have two scheduled. We were supposed to do two this year. Uh, got postponed to next year. So in May and in August of next year, again, we spend one day walking along the South Rim. It's a casual stroll. If you're not good at walking, that's okay. You don't have to walk hardly you know, far at all the way we do our trips. And then uh, we take you on a bus around to different spots to look. You're not climbing uphill or anything. It's, it's flat paved path. Then we get on a bus the next day and we go through a two-mile tunnel, which is really cool, and you come out at the bottom of Glen Canyon Dam and you get into a raft and you float smoothly down the river. It's not whitewater rafting where you're falling out and breaking your head open or anything. We've had five-year-olds go. We had a couple that was 80, year old, 80 years old go. We had one guy who was by himself. He was, I think, 85. Loved the trip, so it's an easy family trip. And all along the way, we share some of these scientific evidences and point them out. You can see them for yourself. You don't have to trust the experts. You, just, you can see it. And it's just really, really exciting. So if you're interested, uh, see us at the table or our website gives more details for uh, that particular trip. We, we like pastors to be able to go with their congregation. So for everyone from a church that signs up, we give $50 off. So if 20 people sign up, it's $1,000 off. That's actually more than the cost of the trip. <laughs> so a pastor can quit his day job and just do tours with us full time. It works <clears throat> pretty well. Uh, this is just some video footage I took. We go along around this river on the rafts. I went up to the top. I'm afraid of heights, but I was pretty proud of myself holding the phone out there, uh, taking this view. But it's just beautiful. And then to see the beauty of it, but also realize this is, this is God's judgment on this planet because of sin. But it's just a, quite a trip. Uh, I, there's another place in the area that's not part of our tour, but you can visit it if you want, called Antelope Canyon. I took this picture with my phone. It's just gorgeous, the sunlight coming through at noon. Uh, we're going to wrap up this talk with one little mini section at the end here. Talk about the destructive power of moving water. It's amazing what water can do. A little bit of water in a short period of time. I have one quick personal story. This is not a major example, but it's just a real-life one. My wife and I were able to go to Fiji. I went twice last year. She went with me the first time, and we were actually speaking in, uh, in the deep interior. We are not laying around on the beaches for a week. We were in the deep interior. It would take you hours on an army truck to get there. We were speaking to public high school students all about 
God as their creator in Genesis and the authority of God's word and even Jesus Christ. We had to be a little careful in some of the schools we were in. Christian schools, we were in some Catholic schools, we were in some Muslim schools, we were in some Hindu schools. It was, it was fascinating. A lot of stories there, but I have to fast forward. One of the schools we went to, you know, was way, way, way up in the highlands, and we, you know, for hours we had to travel and cross a lot of bridges. Well, after one of the talks, we were coming back. It had rained out a fair amount, so we're crossing the bridges again. You can see the rain there. Well, this is one of the bridges that we had come. We were coming this way and we came across. Now we had to go back across this way. Well, when we got there, this was the bridge. <laughs> and you can see that's not a bridge anymore. <laughs> it, we stood there for like three, three and a half hours just staring at this, hoping the waters would you know, subside. They didn't. At one point, I told the guys, I said, look at the way the water is swirling. I said, I don't think the bridge is even there anymore. They took a stick and put it in. It just went all the way down. There was no bridge. So even if the water went away, we weren't getting across. The only thing we could do is turn around and go the wrong way because there's only one road to get in there and one road out. We had to go the wrong way. It took us an extra five and a half hours. Traveled all night, no sleep. Went right to the next school and had to speak again. But the next day, I had a blessing. We had this sunset. I again took with my phone. It was just, it's, it's like unreal. It was like fake. But this is uh, the view that God allowed us to have. And as afterwards, I was looking at the picture and I just thought, I, I could picture a dinosaur being there. <laughs> the dinosaur is not real, but the picture is. But it was a lot of destructive power. Just, it rained. It wasn't even a monsoon. It just rained for a little bit. We're going to look at four really quick examples, and these will go pretty quick and then we'll, we'll end. Burlingame Canyon, Glen Canyon Dam, and Missoula Flood, and Mount St. Helens. Burlingame Canyon in Washington State. There were some farmers that had some irrigation channels and one of them got clogged. So they had to temporarily reroute the water into this drainage ditch, which was about six feet wide. Some of it went up to 10 feet deep. So just let the water channel through there for a little bit. This is what happened to that channel. It turned into this. Can you imagine like a year later, there's this big canyon there? Oh, that, that wasn't a year later, it was six days later. A little bit of water going through a drainage ditch did this, so don't leave the hose on in your backyard for very long. This is six days. This is massive through solid rock there. It's just amazing. That's just one small example in Glen Canyon Dam. This again is where we get in. <clears throat> when we do the Grand Canyon tours, we go up to Page, Arizona to get on the river. And here's a picture of the Glen Canyon Dam. So we go through a two-mile tunnel that goes through this rock, come out here, and then get on the river. But here's Lake Powell behind Glen Canyon Dam. This is a side view of it. And then from the back, <clears throat> you see this angle here. So the water's dammed up, and then we get on the river. In the area, they have measured for every inch of rain that hits that area, it is an equivalent 12-foot rise of water in that lake because it comes from all over and it drains into the lake. Well, in 1983, they had a lot of rain and some uh, snow melt from the past winter, and the water went up really high, and it was in danger of going over the top of the dam. That is not a good thing. You just cannot allow that. So they have ways of trying to get around things like that. They have some outlet tubes, which you can see here at the bottom. This will let some of the water come through so it doesn't breach the dam over the top. So here's a picture, 17,000 cubic feet of water per second just pouring out. So they opened up the tubes in 1983. It wasn't enough. So then they have a spillway that they opened up too. This is an extra 32,000 cubic feet 
of water per second. That's equivalent to 3,000 bathtubs every second. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying bathtubs are actually coming out of here. <laughs> I know for sure someone's going to say, no, I'm pretty sure Jay said there were bathtubs coming out of there. <laughs> um, a lot of water. Well, they opened this up, and the water was just pouring out. And shortly after, the ground started shaking, and the water started turning reddish, and they saw big chunks flying out of there, so they quickly shut off the spillway, and they went inside, and this is what they saw. A hole 32 feet deep, 40 feet wide, and 150 feet long. Through a tunnel, water going through a tunnel that was designed to have water going through it. It broke through in just probably a matter of minutes. It broke through solid, probably three foot thick, rebar reinforced concrete and solid Navajo sandstone in just a few minutes. And that's what it was designed to do, it's carry water through it. Yet it did all that damage in a very short period of time, largely having to do with something called cavitation. Well, side note about cavitation, it can produce temperatures up to 35,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's three, three and a half times hotter than the surface of the sun. It's not the heat that does the damage. It, it, it's, and it's not an explosion. It's an implosion. It bubbles form and then they implode on themselves. And the shock waves that go out do all the damage. I give a talk on this, but I'm going to skip some of those details. But just cavitation, little air bubbles, did all the damage that you just saw. And we'll end with Mount St. Helens. Or there, there might be one. I, I think I skipped the Missoula flood, but Mount St. Helens, most of you are familiar with that. I was supposed to be doing a Mount St. Helens tour last month, uh, the 40th anniversary, but COVID. <laughs> so we're doing it next year instead, next August. If anyone's interested, you can come on the tour with us. Here are a few of the highlights. May 18th of 1980, a volcano erupted violently for nine hours. Earthquake registering 5.1 on the Richter scale triggered the initial landslide that caused the steam blast that went off to the north of the volcano. The initial steam blast was 550 degrees Fahrenheit, went 150 miles an hour, and is equivalent to 20 million tons of dynamite. That's pretty powerful. And that's just the initial steam blast. 150 square miles of forest were leveled in six minutes. That's enough lumber to build 640,000 three-bedroom homes in six minutes. A lot of damage in a short period of time. Here's the timber that just, that just got devoured in that short period of time on the land here. Over the entire episode, is equivalent to 400 million tons of TNT. That's 20,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. That's one atomic bomb going off every second for nine hours. That's absolutely amazing. It produced a wave from Spirit Lake 860 feet high. That is it. You want to go surfing? That is a massive, massive wave. And it washed all those trees out onto the Spirit Lake there. So you can see the logs here. And there are actually still about a half a million logs. There's about a million logs here. There's still about a half a million logs 40 years later on Spirit Lake. You can actually see it today. Two years later, March 1982, a mud flow up in the cone, just some mud started flowing out of the canyon, out of the, the uh, volcano. It formed a 140th scale Grand Canyon, 150 feet deep in one day. Mud, two years later, flowing out of there, carved through solid rock, a little mini canyon in one day. The volcano that formed Yellowstone was probably 2,000 times more powerful than Mount St. Helens. So here's that little, they call it the little Grand Canyon, that was carved out in just one Day. In fact, they did a series of canyons that were carved out by that mud flow. So that's Mount St. Helens from a mud flow. So now we take a look at Grand Canyon. Looks kind of similar, doesn't it? Now we go back 
to Mount St. Helens, and now we put them side by side. Do they look completely different? No, they look very similar. So if this happened in one day, why do we, all oh, the six million years of the Colorado River, it's like, no, it doesn't make any sense at all. Grand Canyon was carved out catastrophically, and there's a lot of evidence for it. So as I wind down here, I, I skipped the Missoula flood. It's fascinating, but we ran out of time. Why does this matter? If I don't cover this last part, it's a little bit like trivia. Like, that was really cool about the flood. I didn't realize those things. Where do you want to go for lunch? And then you go on with your day. So why does this matter? Here's one of the biggest reasons why this matters, and it has to do with death. It's like, wait a minute, how do you connect the flood and all that happening with just the concept of death? This is really, really important. Anytime I give a talk on the age of the earth, which is highly controversial with a lot of people, and I understand why, I tell people it's not about the age of the earth. I don't care how old the earth is. I have an opinion. I happen to think God created it in six days, and I don't think it was that long ago. I, I see huge problems with the idea of millions and billions of years, scientifically and biblically, but I don't really care what the age is. This is what matters. It's death. We all have a question to answer. Every single person in this church this morning has to answer a question. And here's the background of the question. We have the Garden of Eden. We talked about that before. We know for a fact there are many layers in the earth. You've all seen the layers. They are there. Nobody debates that. And we also know that these layers are literally filled with billions and billions of fossils. We call it the fossil record. No controversy there. Atheists agree with that. Christians agree with that. And everyone in between. It's also a fact that these fossils represent death, disease, pain, and suffering. There were creatures that were living at some point. They're dead now, and they got buried. They died. Some of them have diseases. There's death, disease, pain, and suffering represented in the fossil record. No question there. Nobody argues with that. The question you all have to answer is this. How did this happen? How did those layers get there? How did all those dead things get there? One answer is this. It got there through natural history. Many religious people and even many Christians just say, well, God used nature and natural history over hundreds of millions of years as he was forming the earth, and, and that's how they got there. This is, represents about you know, 550 million years of earth history of all these sedimentary layers. So, you know, okay, if God did that, building the earth that way over hundreds of millions of years, then when those layers were done, afterwards he plants a garden and puts Adam and Eve in it. And then they're saying, oh, this is such a perfect world. Well, you know what? That makes God responsible for what happened prior to mankind even being here. It's not Adam and Eve's fault that all those dead things are here. God did all that before they were even created. How could it be their fault? It's not. So if God created death, disease, pain, and suffering before Adam and Eve were even on the planet, then it's not our fault that death, disease, pain, and suffering are here. So then why did Jesus come and die on a cross? Not our fault. That was part of God's creation process. Well... The other answer is that you think the flood was responsible for catastrophically laying all these things down. That makes man responsible. Romans 5.12 says it was by Adam's sin that brought death in the world. Adam's sin that brought death and a curse into God's perfect creation. And about 1,600 years after God created Adam and Eve, it was getting worse and worse and worse. And then God says, that's it. Time's up. I'm judging you. I'm going to wipe you out. I'm sending a global flood. And it creates all these layers, all these dead things because of mankind's sin. So... Is this just a snapshot of God's process of creation? Oh, yeah, God used the Big Bang and all the millions and billions of years. It doesn't matter. He's all powerful. He can do whatever he wants, right? Is that what that is? Or is this a graphic picture of God's judgment on sin? It's how much he hates sin. He, he sent judgment. 
by a worldwide flood. He said, in the end, I'm not going to do it by a worldwide flood. I'm going to do it by fire. I'm going to do it again. I'm coming back, and there's going to be another judgment. Do we take that seriously? Well, it didn't happen the first time, so it's probably not going to happen the second time. Or maybe it'd just be a local fire. <laughs> I got to find out where to move or get fire insurance or something. But you have to answer that, not me. I'm not going to answer it for you. You have to decide which view do you have. If you believe in the secular Big Bang and God used all that, well, then you have to accept death, disease, pain, and suffering being here before we were here. It's not our fault. On the other hand, if you think, well, this was laid down catastrophically in a flood, you're kind of limited with your view of creation. They must have been six literal days, and it couldn't have been hundreds of millions or billions of years ago. So you connect the dots, but it's about death. It's not about the age of the earth. And it really is about the authority of God's word. Do we really believe this? Or do we think we know better? We get some knowledge somewhere else, and then we come to God's word and decide what we like, what we don't like. There's a lot of things in here I don't like. <laughs> I'll be honest. There's things in here I don't really understand. But I don't think I'm in a position to say certain things in here aren't true, and I'll reject other things because I don't like them. It's God's word, so I'm kind of stuck with this, and God helps us understand it the more we study it. The more you study science, the more you realize, wow, God kind of knew what he was talking about. I always say, even though this is God's first shot at writing a book, I think he did a pretty good job. <laughs> so, wrapping up Psalm 119, 160, thy word is true from the beginning. Genesis is the beginning of God's word. If we can't trust him for all that, why would he trust him for anything else? We got a lot of resources very, very, very quickly. What we brought along, and I'll close in prayer. Everything is available online. We also have it available on our table. We've got 10 DVDs that are all now streamable. You can also purchase physical DVDs. Um, the book that I wrote, I've been told by some of the world's leading scientists, I think it's the best overview that's out there. I was honored to hear that. I got seven pocket-sized booklets. We have a brand new DVD series that came out recently, five-part series on the inspiration of the Bible. Our new four-part series on the flood is going to be coming out probably by the end of this month. It'll be streamable first, and then we'll have the physical DVD. You can get one of everything for $85. gives you the physical DVDs if you just want to stream everything. That 65 gives you all of our videos and the booklets and the book. Um, we've got a free monthly newsletter that comes out once a month. You can sign up at the table or sign up online. We also have a live stream broadcast that I do live, and then we take live questions. All of the old programs are archived, so you can watch all the past episodes on our, right from our website. I have a question of the month that I write. Always throw out an intriguing question to get you to think a little bit deeper. And then our uh, engagement request, if you want me to speak somewhere else, maybe you used to live in Utah or you have an uncle in South Carolina or somewhere, some connection, just fill out our form, turn it in, and you can help us get connected for speaking. We don't charge anything for our talks. We do ask that travel expenses be covered, but there's never a, talk, a charge for any of the talks. I already mentioned Grand Canyon, so see us for that, and then Mount St. Helens as well. I think I have one slide up for that. Mount St. Helens is August 17th through the 21st. If you want to go on that trip, just see us for that one. So with that, I, get, I know you're wishing I would talk a little faster. And my, my wife will tell me, you've got to slow down. <laughs> I never will. <laughs> I just get going and get excited about all this. But I really hope that this wasn't a trivia session for you where it's, oh, it's kind of cool stuff. I really hope that you realize more so than ever, you can actually trust everything that's in you. You don't have to be embarrassed about any of it or explain away anything. It's just God means what he says and says what he means. You can trust the whole thing. So I uh, appreciate you allowing me to be here. If you have any questions afterwards, I'll be out in the lobby for a while and I'll close in a word of prayer. Definitely, Father, we just thank you so much for this time that we had to take a look at the ultimately the authority of your word. We just thank you for each person being here this morning and those maybe listening online. 
pray that their faith would be greatly strengthened not to go out and win arguments with people, but to be very bold and gracious as they're sharing the gospel message with a lost and dying world and is as up down as upside down as things are right now. It should be even easier for us to witness. People are screaming for hope and we, we know that we have it in Jesus Christ. So I pray each person would have an opportunity this week to share that faith with those around them. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.